This morning we're going to be in, in Mark 8, 22 through 26. And so we're going to see the eye-opening Jesus. Or if you're taking notes, another title that I, that I almost used was The Blessed Oculist. The Blessed Oculist. So what we'll see, we'll see one of Jesus' miracles this morning. So, so if you're there, Mark 8, you can follow along as I read verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up, and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Well, so this is our passage, and hopefully after just that first reading, hopefully there's a question coming to your mind that says, why does Jesus do it this way? Why this, this partial healing followed by a complete healing? Why, why these two steps? And, and hopefully by the end of this, this sermon, you'll, you'll be able to, to at least somewhat uh, answer that question. Um, so, so our passage is only, only a few verses, but, but I've broken it down into three sections. There's the unexpected touch of verses 22 and 23. Then we have the, the partial healing in verse 24. And then finally, the full healing or the complete healing in verses 25 through 26. So, so we'll work through those three sections. Uh, but before we look at the first one, let me, let me just um, say a word about the context of Mark's gospel. So if, you, if you're a Bible student, which, which if you're a Christian, you should be. Okay, all of you should be Bible students. Uh, one, one of the, the keys in Bible study is, is understanding the context. Context is always key. Okay, and so here, as we look at this passage, we're, we're going to consider the context because I think the context helps us understand what's going on here. And so if you remember, if you weren't with us, let me remind you, uh, last week, the, the, the events that we saw where, where Jesus fed the 4,000, he had this conversation with the Pharisees, and then with his disciples... They're, they're arguing about not having enough bread, having just seen a miraculous um, a miracle of, of, of 5,000 and 4,000 people being fed by just little bread. And so Jesus asked the disciples, the last verse we looked at last week, if you, if you just look up in your Bibles there at verse 21 of, of Mark 8, he asked them, do you not understand? Do you not yet understand? So, so the disciples are, are being painted as they don't get it. And so he actually asked them, do you having eyes not see? And so we have this image of the disciples who don't get it. They're, they're blind, even, Jesus says. And so this event, this healing of this man who has eyes but can't see, okay, physically he has eyes he can't see, this event immediately precedes the, or follows the, the, the event of the disciples not seen. And so I think that Jesus intends for this healing to be as much for his disciples as for the blind man. Okay, so, so I, I think the disciples... Uh, there's no doubt that they were meant to learn something from what happens to this man. And so it's going to be important to remember the failure of the disciples. And, and I'm going to argue that that's the reason that, that this event takes place is, is because of what's just happened with the disciples. So, so, so summarizing all, all of that, setting the context, the, this man's physical blindness, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going to argue, is a, a picture of the disciples' spiritual blindness. Okay, so, so I think that the fact that it happens in stages is, is supposed to encourage or at least convey something to the disciples. So, I, so I'm going to take this man's blindness that's physical and apply it spiritually. Now, I don't think he can always do that, but I think the context allows us to do that here. 
Okay, so, so that's what we're going to, that's, that's kind of the context um, as we look. So, so let's look down, let's look at the verses, verse 22. So right there in verse 22, Mark, Mark says, they came to Bethsaida. So again, remember, they're all around the Sea of Galilee. Now, Bethsaida is on the northern shore, the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's closer to Galilee, but it's still technically outside of Galilee. So this is still non-Jewish territory. Remember, they had, they'd gone over and they had their argument with the Pharisees, and now that right afterwards they get in the boat and they're going back. And on that boat, on that trip across the sea, is when Jesus and the disciples have that conversation. So after they, they land, they're in Bethsaida. And so they get there, and some people, Mark says, brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And so, so enter the scene, the, the main character, the man. Now, we don't know much about this man. So, so nothing is said about this man's faith. Jesus doesn't say that, that he had his friends bring him, and he said, I, I've just got to touch him. Remember, like the woman, the bleeding woman, it was her faith that, that was emphasized in that account. All we know is that, that Mark records some people brought a blind man to Jesus, so we don't know what this man's state is. Maybe he, was, maybe he was skeptical. Maybe he was reluctant to come to Jesus. All we know is that his friends or some people, I'm going to use friends because I assume that's who would bring him. Okay, but all Mark says is some people, but they bring this blind man to Jesus and, and they beg him, notice that word, they begged him to touch the blind man. And so regardless of what this man thought or believed, the blind man, these people, his friends, they were confident that Jesus could heal him with just a touch. Did you notice that? They beg him, just touch him, Jesus. Just touch him. We know about you. We know about your power. Just, just touch this man. We know that's all it's going to take. So they come begging for a touch. And so notice what happens next. Jesus does touch the man, but it's not the touch that they were expecting. Look at verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand. So there's the touch, but he led him out of the village. So it's not the healing touch that they were expecting. Rather, Jesus touches this man and he leads him away from the village. So he's getting away from the crowd, away from Bethsaida. And to be honest, I don't know why he does this. Okay? It's not the first time it's happened. It happened in two other places. Uh, but we can tell from our context especially that there's something about Bethsaida. So here he takes him away from, from the, the village. And then in verse 26, if you notice when, he, when, he's, when he's healed and he sends him home, he says, go home, just don't enter the village. So in other words, when Jesus sends him home, he's basically saying, go the long way home. I don't want you going through Bethsaida. So there's, there's something about the village uh, that, that Jesus says, stay away from that. I don't, again, I don't, I don't think anyone can say for sure. If I had to guess, it seems most likely that, that Jesus is wanting to avoid the, the fanfare, right? the publicity that seems to or accompany his, his healings. And so, so as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, there's this secrecy motif that, that seems to run throughout. So Jesus, it's not his time yet, and so he doesn't want everyone knowing because, as we saw previously, the, the, the publicity actually hindered his ability to work and, and minister. So who knows why? He leads him outside of the village, and, and the main point to note is that the touch isn't the touch that the, the people were expecting. Rather, it's a leading touch to take him away from the village. I mean, I wondered, what is this man thinking as he's being led away. Okay, so, so he's been grabbed by, by this healer that his friends brought him to. And he has no idea where he's going. Maybe his friends are following him. We assume friends and disciples are following him. Uh, but, but he's completely at the mercy of Jesus as he walks behind Jesus, leading him. And there, when they get outside the village, Jesus stops. And, and notice there what happens next. So he leads the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And then here we go. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And so Jesus takes him away from the village, and, and here again, like two weeks ago, we have mention of, of the saliva of Jesus, 
right? We, we can't get away from that. Once again, the, the spittle, if you have a King James, it probably says his spittle, okay? So, so here's Jesus' saliva. And like I said last time, I don't know why he uses his spit or saliva. I mean, there, there, there are people who argue that this had a, a value in their culture, that, there was, that, that the saliva of people, especially of well-known people, had this, had this magic power. Um, I think the best answer is to recognize that there is no clear reason why he does this. Um, you can talk to Jean Felberg. She has a reason, so, so let her explain to you. She has a good reason. Um, but but the, the thing that I will point out, and I think it's important for us to notice, is that the spit or the saliva is never seen or understood as the cause of any healing. So even last week when he, when he spit and put it in his eyes, it was his words when he said, be opened, that Mark says that's what healed him. And so here, the, the spit or saliva is never the source of the healing. Okay, it's always about Jesus as the source. And so, so what is clear is that Jesus here, with these, this spitting and this laying on of hands, he's, he's addressing this man's condition, and these are intended to, to represent some type of healing, a, a healing touch and spit. And so at the end of verse 23, after spitting in his eyes and laying hands on him, notice the question that Jesus asks. You see the, the question at the end of verse 23. He spits, he lays on his hands, and he says, Do you see anything? Do you see anything? This is one of those cases where I wish we could have inflection conveyed in the text. How does he ask the question? We don't know. But he asks the question. This is a unique question. This is the only time in anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus asks or inquires about the success of a healing. Do you see anything? It's almost as if Jesus is unsure about whether it's worked or not. Ooh, do you, do you see anything? Did it work? I mean, I was reminded about maybe, maybe some of you when, when I was in middle school or, or elementary school and you learned a new card trick. And it's a five-minute card trick, and so your parents or someone is patiently listening as you work out the whole thing, and you get to the end, instead of confidently saying, I know your card, you say, is this your card? Is, is that it? Did I, did I do it right, or did I waste your time? But, but, but that's not the, the tone of Jesus' question. Okay? We know Jesus by this point when we get to chapter 8. So Jesus could have healed the man with one word. He could have said, be opened, or see, or light, or he could have just not even said a word. At his thought, he could have healed the man. And so, so the question isn't whether or not, or not. Jesus isn't asking. It's not because he's wondering if it worked or not. Jesus knows what happened. In fact, Jesus intentionally causes it to happen the way it does. And so why the question? That, why does he ask this question? Why does he ask, do you see anything? I mean, first, think about, think about that word, anything. That, that word, anything, to a blind man, he, he's blind. And I assume he was born blind at birth. At least for, he's been blind for a long time. And so for him to see anything, that, that's a miracle, isn't it? If he's blind and he sees anything, then it's a miracle. And so he says, do you see anything? As opposed to, do you see the nothing that you've always been seeing? As long as you can remember. He says, do you see anything? And so part of me, if I'm this man, part of me, there's, there's, there's feels that he senses an extreme excitement. I see. Yeah, you've done this. You, you spit in my eyes and you've touched me. And I see so that there's probably some excitement with this man, having never seen before. But another part of me senses that there has to be some, somewhat a sense of disappointment. Right? I see. Yes, I do see. But, but it's not what I thought it would be like. Is, it, is this what it's meant to be like? I, I mean, I, I see, but, but it's not really clear. Is, is this all you're going to do? Is this why my friends brought me here, just for this? And so he sees, but it's not really clear yet, at least not yet. 
And so, and so before we move on to, to verse 24, I mean, think about the disciples who, who I assume, we assume are, are the onlookers. I mean, if Jesus is doing this for their sake, they're, they're probably here watching. And so remember up in, in verse 19 of chapter 8, last week's passage, Jesus asked them a similar question. He said, having eyes, do you not see? And so in that situation, having just had the conversation with Jesus, these disciples had eyes and couldn't see anything. That's what Jesus says. Do you, do you having eyes not see? So now the disciples are seeing a, a man who, who has eyes, and he can't see anything. But after a brief encounter with Jesus, he can now see something. So he and his disciples are seeing a blind man who, after a, a brief interaction with Jesus, is a step ahead of where they are. At least he sees something, whereas they, they do not see anything, as Jesus had just asked them prior and so again, like I said, I think this healing is just as much for these disciples as for the blind man. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Um, but, but then notice verse 24. Notice the man's answer. Jesus says, do, do you see anything? Verse 24, and he looked up and he said, I see people. But they look like trees. Not just any trees, but walking trees. I see people, but they look like trees walking. I mean, some, some people, I remember growing up, this was, this was the favorite verse in the Bible people would quote. This and Jesus wept in a story about Abraham and calling down bears to maul young boys. This was one of them. Walking trees, people who walk like trees. What, what in the world is going on? Understand it's one of the strangest verses that, that we might read. Um, but, but let's think about what's happening. First, the man does see something. Okay? Let, let's get that clear. He does see something. Something has happened between when, when he first met Jesus and now. He does see something. And he says, I see people. Okay, but, but the people don't look like people. Rather, they look like walking trees. Now, I don't think there's any hidden meaning. I don't think that, that we have to read into this. I, I simply think this man, I don't think it's a, a, a heavenly vision that he sees. I, I think he has blurry sight. It's, it's a partial restoration. The, the man's sight has been restored, but, but it's not complete yet. It's been restored, but, it, but it, it's, he doesn't see clearly. And so he, he looks up and he says, well, I see people, but they look like trees. Now, some people will say, well, he hasn't been blind his whole life if he knows what a tree looks like. Maybe. I mean, if he's been around, he probably can, feeling and description, he can know what a tree looks like. I mean, it's just a big stick, right? Okay, I see a big blur. That looks like a tree or what at least I think a tree would look like. I don't think this means that he has seen before, but I think he sees people moving, but, but he can't distinguish if they're people. They just look like big blobs walking towards them, like, like in the Lord of the Rings, if you're familiar with the, the ints the walking tree. So, so Jesus partially restores the sight. Then look at verses 25. Look what happens in verse 25, because this man's sight, it's not blurry for long. Verse 25, after that question that answered, Jesus then laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Let me read that verse again. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Do you notice that repetition? Look how many times eyes or sight is, is mentioned there. He laid his hands on his eyes. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And so here I say this is the most important verse of our passage because this verse is making clear, I would say, the main idea of the passage, which is that clear sight is only possible by way of Jesus. Clear sight. His eyes are opened. He saw it. came back to him. Sight, eyes, he sees. It's clear. And so clear sight, this passage argues, is that both physical and spiritual, clear sight is only possible by way of Jesus. Another main point 
Or another way of saying the main point is that clear sight for the blind man physically and for the disciples spiritually is only possible by way of Jesus. Jesus completely restores this man's sight so that now he saw everything clearly. No more walking trees, only crystal clear, high definition, 20-20 vision. Jesus restored his sight. And in verse 26, to conclude, he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. And so, so that's the end of our story. That's the end of our passage. And, and so as we close, I want to I mention three specific applications that I see from this passage. Okay, so, so the, the, the second application that we'll get to hopefully will answer your question, why a two-stage healing? So, so if you're a thinking reader, hopefully you're saying, well, you haven't even answered the question. You're done. We're at the end. Well, hopefully the second application will, will answer the question, why a two-stage healing? Uh, but, but first, let, let me make a first application. Application one from this, for us as believers, first, the example of the people or the example of the friends. And so the, the application would be never cease taking others to Christ. So I see an example of the friends for us. Now, now in evangelism, yes. Yeah. So, so when I say taking others to Christ, do I, mean, do I mean taking Christ to others? Was that just a mix-up in wording? Now, I, I'm certainly for evangelism, but my focus here is geared towards you and the Lord, Never cease taking others to the Lord, and specifically in prayer. And so, so I'd ask if you're a believer here, when's the last time you prayed consistently for a non-Christian to be saved? When's the last time? Or, or when's the last time you prayed consistently for a Christian, whether a friend or a son or a daughter who, who seems to have lost their way? When's the last time you prayed consistently for them? I mean, surely your, their waywardness burdens you. And I can assure you that that waywardness burdens him also. And so, so I would encourage you, take them, him or her, to the Lord. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them, yes. Have, have conversations with them, yes. Have them in your home for dinner, yes. But, but before any of that, and while you're doing all of that, pray for them. Pray for them. If, if the Lord doesn't work, all of your labor is in vain. You can have every gospel conversation you want. If the Lord isn't at work, it's in vain. And so pray. I mean, think about this passage. This life-changing event, this miraculous encounter was started by some people in verse 22. These, these friends were sure that Jesus could heal this man. Regardless of the quality or the substance of their faith, maybe they said, well, we want to see a magic trick, so let's take him. Regardless of, of their faith or the substance of it, my point is simply that this man doesn't appear to have any interest in seeing Jesus, yet his friends take him to see Jesus. And his life has changed. And so I'd encourage you, if, if you have friends, family members who, who don't know Jesus, who, maybe they're skeptical, maybe they won't even consider him, why not take them to Jesus? Why not spend time asking the Lord to save them? Our prayers for others ought to be far more spiritually concerned than physically concerned. Can I, can I encourage you and challenge you with that? Our prayers for others ought to be far more spiritually concerned than physically concerned. Yes, we should pray for healing. Yes, we should pray for, for cancer to, to be healed. But guess what? They're going to die eventually, right? Physical healing is always only temporary. We should pray for those things, yes, but why ought we not to pray for eternal things far more than, than physical things? And so let us learn from, from these friends. Never cease taking others to Christ. Well, then secondly, second application, we, we, I think we see the gradual progress of faith. 
So I think this two-stage healing is simply to show that the gradual progress of faith. I think this is why Jesus doesn't heal the man first attempt. I think he intentionally makes it a two-stage process for this man, but, but also for his disciples and for us to see that clear sight is a process. It's a gradual progress. This healing was as much for the disciples as it was for the man. And so the disciples are, are seen as they're watching this healing of this man, that they're watching what, what seems to be a biography of sorts. They're seeing their, their own lives, their own experience. So, so throughout this entire gospel, the, the disciples, the ones who should get it, are the ones who don't get it. They're walking and talking with Jesus. They're, they're the receptors of his teaching, yet they're the ones who don't understand. Remember last week, do you not understand And so this story serves as a dramatization of the spiritual difficulty of the disciples. It's a progress. It doesn't happen all at once. And so, I mean, think about what this event, what this healing conveys to the disciples. First, as I mentioned, Jesus is the only one who can give true sight. These disciples, as they're watching this man who's totally dependent on Jesus for for his physical healing... They are to think and be reminded of themselves that they are dependent on Jesus for any spiritual thing, any spiritual sight. Just like the blind man was at the mercy of Jesus, so were the disciples. And even when they get it, now next week, Lord willing, we'll see Peter get it. His great confession, you are the Christ, he'll say next next week in our passage. But even when they get it, they're still still in need of much growth, as, as the very next verse or passage will show after he gets it. And so even their clear sight, even their clear understanding, as, as Peter will display next week, they're, they're, they're in need of, of God helping them understand the identity of Jesus. And they're having to continually be reminded, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am. And so the disciples see in this miraculous scene a dramatization of their own spiritual pilgrimage. And likewise, by extension, we, we learn from this passage that, that we are all in process as well. From the time that we're saved until the time that we see Jesus face to face, we're in process. And it's a gradual process. And so we're, we're, we're constantly having to have our eyes checked. And we, we should be constantly checking our eyes. I mean, it's easy to lose sight. It's easy to think that walking trees are the norm. But if you're a Christian, God has given you eyes to see. And, and any spiritual vision that you have, it is a direct result of His work. And so thank God for his eye-opening work. If, if you have eyes to see the, the glories of the gospel, if you, have, if you have a heart to love Jesus, that is a direct result of God giving you eyes and giving you ears to discern the, the mystery of the gospel. That's foolishness to many people. And so thank God for that. Let's not forget that we will always be in process, that we will always have hindrance to our vision. As long as we're in these bodies on this earth, we're going to have hindrances. We're going to have specks in our eyes. More of us probably have logs in our eyes. We're all going to have blind spots that that hinder our vision, so we must always be recalibrating, looking to Jesus, and having our vision inspected. And we're we're hopeful. One commentator said, if if the second touch in this passage, so so remember the first touch was partial healing, second touch was full healing. One commentator says, if if this second touch symbolized a, a definite experience for a Christian it would be that of glorification when we will no longer see only fragments of Christ, but his full glory revealed before us. And so, so as long as we're in these bodies on this earth, we're going to have blurred vision. But there's a day coming, believer, 
when we will see clearly, we will know fully, as even now as we are fully known, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. No hindrances, no blurry trees walking, only the beauty of our Lord Christ face to face clearly. And so, so let, us, let us long for that day. Let us long for that day. But in the meantime, let us recognize our need for continual sharpening of our spiritual vision. And then lastly, our, our final application, number three, the, the identity of Jesus. Once again, Mark aims to help us understand the identity of this man. If you feel like you've heard this before, if you heard this application before, it's because you have. Over and over and over, Mark is highlighting the identity of Jesus. This is no ordinary man. This, this is the Messiah, God himself in the flesh, the, the promised one who's come to, to proclaim and establish the kingdom of God. And so here in our passage, just like a couple passages ago, there, there's an echo of Isaiah 35, 5, and 6 here. Just like that last miraculous thing, here the eyes of the blind shall be opened, Isaiah 35 says. Well, well here we see that. And so in Isaiah, these the signs of, of eyes being opened and ears being unstopped, all these are signs that the salvation of the Lord has come. And Mark wants us to recognize that Jesus has come as the agent of that salvation. Salvation is at hand in and through this man. And so you've heard this all before because this is the entire first half of Mark's gospel. He's, he's aiming at establishing the identity of Jesus. And that's why next week it'll climax in the proclamation, the declaration of Peter. You are the Christ. Ding, 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 ding. The whole Mark's whole gospel up to chapter 8, verse 30 is, is, is leading towards that. And finally, Peter gets it. You're the Christ. And so Mark's chapter 1 through 8 Make that point over and over and over. And we'll see, we'll see that, that even after that proclamation, in verse 29 of chapter 8, you are the Christ. Two verses later, verse, actually four verses later, Jesus says to Peter in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. So we'll see there's a whole other issue that the rest of Mark's gospel addresses, namely, you're the Christ, we got it, but you're not supposed to suffer. So the whole second half is this Christ has to suffer. And so the disciples have a whole other hill to climb. How, how can this Christ that we've finally gotten, how is he going to suffer? Well, I'm ahead of myself. That, that's, that's coming in months ahead. That, that's then. Um, let, let's, pray. let's pray as we close.